Hopefully you enjoyed that breather because now it's time to get back into why I kept my towel with Corey Hall. So now I'm I'm remarried. Life is grand. You know, we're, we're doing we're doing great. Um, and then one night she comes home and she said, um, I'm late. And I said, late for what? Where are we supposed to be? She said, no, I'm late and I think I'm pregnant. So she went and took three tests and all of them said that she was indeed pregnant. Um, I'm still not convinced that that wasn't a wedding night baby. Still not convinced that that's not the truth. But, <laughs> so uh, we had a little boy in July of uh, 2016. Um you know, just the light of our world, you know, having this little boy and, um, w- which was really a cool thing for me because, um, because in my family, in my family bloodline, I am the last male of my last name to carry on that family name within my bloodline. So if I didn't have kids, the family name would have died. Um, so it was great that, you know, I had a boy. Okay. We can, keep the family going now um time went by and oops i'm pregnant again and um this time i i I got strong and i blew the nuts off of that one and made a little girl in november of 2017 she was born they were 16 months apart after our daughter was born you know life is great you know husband and wife a little boy a little girl okay this is this is the perfect family unit this is the perfect family you know th- this is great this is what we're looking for i'm just i'm, I'm just waiting on the money to buy the, the material to build the fence out front for the white picket fence that's all we're missing life was going well and then um kind of a separate set of events um that happened but uh one evening a few months after my daughter was born we were we were on our way to church and uh, I saw some lights flashing on the highway and I pulled up and it was actually the car of one of the elderly men in our church wrecked his car. He had drove his car off into a ditch. He was stuck and, you know, he was an older man, really shouldn't have been driving. But anyway, so, you know, we, we pull over and I'm kind of dealing with that situation of, you know, the sheriff got called, and the railroad ended up getting called and then they called an ambulance to come and just to check him out to make sure that he was okay. So while we're dealing with all of that, my wife is, uh, I'm on one side of this highway and I'm kind of dealing with all this stuff going on. And she's on the other side of the highway in our vehicle with our two kids. And I, I asked, hey, can you take this guy back to his house? Um, he's gonna need a ride home. I'm gonna need to stay here. And she said, yeah. So then she texted me from across the road and she said, can you come here, please? I need to know where he lives or something like that. It was some mundane text. So I, I said, yeah, hang on just a second. So I walked across the road. It's maybe two minutes between the time she sent that text and when I get there. And her car is sitting next to the ambulance. And I get to the car and my wife is in a full-blown seizure. Whoa. And I freaked out and I said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get someone's attention and the EMTs started hollering and they yelled, you know, kill the lights. And they shut all the, they thought maybe it was the lights from the ambulance that was literally about 10 feet away. Maybe that was what was, you know, what triggered it. So they shut all the lights off and um, <laughs> the old man was fine, but they loaded my wife up on the stretcher and took her to the hospital instead. So now I rushed to the hospital um and you know she was fine and uh the the doctor one of the er doctors there uh he said i he said i don't think she had a seizure and what he said to me was i I think she had a heart arrhythmia and if you don't know the difference they look almost identical Mm. i said okay whatever i don't know what all that means but all right so apparently that was the, the direction they were thinking because they told my wife here, uh, they gave, you know, you need to have an appointment with this cardiologist. So a few days later, we met with this heart doctor and uh, the heart doctor said, you know, we need to do this simple procedure. It's, it's an outpatient thing um, to your heart. Here's the name of this doctor that I'm going to refer you to out of town. You're going to have a meeting with him in about a week. Okay, fine. So, you know, everything was fine. It was, you know, kind of a one-off event. This was uh, February of, of 2018. And uh, we 
made that appointment. Well, then that following Sunday, um, after all this is said and done, after the appointment's made, all that, uh, our daughter got kind of sick. Um, you know, she's three months old. It's winter time. It, it, sick kids happen. Uh, she ended up with a case of RSV. Um, so she was having trouble, you know, breathing on her own entirely and properly getting deep breaths. So they, they flew her to a children's hospital in St. Louis. Uh, we quickly, you know, drove over there, um, ran, ran home to grab some clothes, you know, to make it for a day or two. And then we drove over there. So we're in the hospital for a couple days and, and it was clear we were going to be there for more than just a couple days. So, um, one evening, uh, me and my wife, we drove back home, you know, a couple hours to, uh, back home. Um, I picked up our son. Um, she went back to the hospital the next morning by herself. You know, she stayed at the hospital with her daughter. I picked up our son and, you know, went to work every day and then picked him up in the evenings and tried to get back into more of a routine. Um, and then a few days went by. It was Saturday night uh, of that, that week that our daughter was in the hospital. Um, I called my wife. She didn't answer the phone. No big deal. She's tied up, busy, whatever. Um, and then I started getting phone calls from, you know, my father-in-law and my sister-in-law and a couple of her, of her friends saying, you know, why isn't Sarah answering her phone? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Um, and then I realized that she's not answering or talking to anybody. So that was kind of weird. So I just called the hospital, called the hospital room and, um, no one answered. So I called the nurse's desk at the hospital and I said, Hey, can you do me a favor? Go to, you know, room such and such and have my wife call me. The nurse said, um, she said, I've been here, you know, I don't know. I've been about four hours. She said, I've been here about four hours and I haven't seen anybody in that room. And I said, well, that's really weird. I called the security desk of the hospital and told the security guy, hey, can you go outside? And you know, I'm a preacher. So of course I got a black Cadillac. I said, can you go outside and look for my black Cadillac? Um, that's really old and the paint's piff and it's got like 300,000 miles on it. But can you go look for my black Cadillac? So he went and looked for it. And he said, I found your car. It's in the parking lot. Nobody's in it. I said, this is so weird. What is going on right now? So this is about eight o'clock at night. I've pieced together. No one has heard from my wife since two o'clock. So it's been six hours of radio silence from her. And she is still, according to evidence, on the premises of the hospital. But something ain't adding up. I, I drove to the hospital. I had my sister-in-law come get my son. I drove, picked up my father-in-law. And we drove to St. Louis. I'm, I'm I'm a little bit aggravated at this point. Like, what is this girl doing? Why is she not answering the phone? Where is she at? But there's something also telling me that this is this is not just her, you know, um, not answering the phone. You know, I, I just knew inside of myself, this is not good. But I didn't know how to explain that. I didn't know how to compartmentalize that. So we drive to St. Louis in an ice, it's icy. I mean, as all get out, we get there in the ice storm and I pull up into the parking lot of the hospital and I found my car and I went ahead and got out of my car and walked over to the Cadillac that she was in. And I went ahead and peeked through the window and my wife was sitting in the seat of the car and her head was slumped down in such a way that it was almost slumped down into her lap in between the steering wheel and the console of the, of the car. You know, she was, she was in a black car under a shadowed corner with a black jacket and black hair. You know, it was the perfect scenario to not see her if you weren't looking very, very closely. Wow. Um, and I had extra keys to the car in my other vehicle that I was driving. I ran and got them, unlocked the door, and and she was absolutely cold to the touch. So the doctor, you know, I somehow managed to get you know people out there. So they came out with a wheelchair. They took her in uh, to the hospital. Um, you know, ushered, uh, shoved us off into a side room, and we waited for about ten minutes until a doctor came in, and he said. Uh, he said, we literally tried everything possible, but it's very apparent 
that your wife has been gone for several hours. Mm. And now I'm, I'm 26 years old. I'm sorry, I'm 27 years old. And I'm, tw I'm 27 years old. I have two children, one of which is three floors up in a hospital bed. And I'm now getting ready to figure out the burial process for my second wife. Wow. And I called, called one of the guys at our church. Again, this was a Saturday. It was a late Saturday night, early Sunday morning that this all happened. I called him late at night and uh, he answered the phone and I said, hey, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to bother you, but you know, I told him, I said, I'm gonna need you to take care of, of services this morning. Uh, I said, I, I, Sarah passed away and he, you know, he stuttered and he said, wait, he said, hang on a minute. You, do you mean Leah, which is my daughter's name? And I, I said, no, I don't. I, I don't have time to explain it right now, but Sarah passed away. And I made that phone call two or three, three, two or three, four people, and it was the same conversation every time. They thought that I was confused and that I'd misspoke because they all knew my daughter was in the hospital. Um, so the police came. <clears throat> the police, you know, didn't really know how to handle that situation because technically my wife died in a hospital. Technically, she didn't. Um, so St. Louis County finally determined they had to do an autopsy. Um, so after they told me that she had passed, you know, into the room for a few minutes, um, been a few minutes before they took her body and then, um, St. Louis County did a autopsy. And that was the last time, um, I ever saw my wife was that moment. It, it would be a, a couple of weeks later that I would get a box with my wife's ashes in it. So after my wife passed, after that was all said and done. That following morning, uh, the doctor released my daughter from the hospital. So now I'm driving back home with this little three-month-old baby girl, um, and I've got a 16-month-old boy at home, and I I don't know how to do this. Um, you know, I I was I was a good dad in the sense, you know, I make you know I I make the bacon and I bring it home and let her fry it. You know, that was my philosophy. I was the breadwinner. I was good at working and you know, providing and, you know, come home and bounce the kids on my knee for a little bit before they go to bed. Um, that was the kind of dad that I was. Now I am thrust into, you know, being a, being dad and dad, the only parent. And, and I don't, I don't know how to do this. You know, um, I'd only changed one diaper on the little girl oh, wow. in three months. And that was literally like two days before all of this happened. Um, you know, because I always said, look, I, I don't know nothing about no little girls. That's what mommies are for. She can deal with that. If I'll take care of the boy, I, I know what he got, but I'm not, I don't know nothing about little girls. <laughs> I was afraid to go near that little girl. So now I'm, you know, I'm Mr. Mom and I'm playing both roles. And I was absolutely terrified of, of what I was about to do, of, of learning how to do this. You know, I, I tried to work, I tried to manage it, tried to work it out, you know, got day, you know, daycare situations figured out. Um, but then things, things got difficult, um, as if that's not, you know, expected. Things got difficult. My, my mind, between now where my mind was, the responsibility that I now had, the overwhelming truth of not having a clue what I am doing was absolutely terrifying to me. And now I'm living in this place in my life where my mind is absolutely just fried beyond belief. You know, this is the mother of my children that, that, that I said goodbye to. That was the hardest funeral that I've ever been at. I, I had the privilege of preaching. I've preached my grandmother's funeral, my great grandmother's funeral preached my grandfather's funeral. I preached my first wife's funeral. This was absolutely impossible. Why? As a pastor, when you preach somebody's funeral, you are putting every possible ounce of dignity that you can 
into this person and you're trying to leave them and say that you did right by them because this is literally their final moments. Um, these are the last words that people are going to hear in a public context of this person. You're laying this person to rest and you want to make sure that you do that with dignity and with some class and in a way that honors them. And that's a daunting task to give someone. When, when you are already dealing with the daunting task of what speaking at a funeral is, but you couple that with the fact this is the one person in your life that you have never loved like you've ever loved another human. And to know that you're about to stand up and try to put words together that will articulate a person, the, the, the person's life that gave life to your children, the person that gave life to me again, in a sense. But to do that in a way that is objective to the, to the scripture and not just a boo-hoo cry session about how sad I am, but to keep the responsibility of the word of God at the forefront of that. That is absolutely daunting. And it's nearly impossible to do that because you're doing so many things all at one time. And, and that was what I took on when I said that I would speak at her funeral. You know, I had another pastor come that, that was friends with our family, you know, and he, he spoke and I told him, I said, look, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to speak, but not, I, I don't want to speak the whole thing. You know, I, I just want to speak briefly. So, um, he came and he prepared, he said, you know, I, he said, I'm going to speak for just a few moments. He said, and then, you know, you can speak for however short or as long as you feel like, but you know, when it's, when I'm done, you're up. And then when you're done, we'll, we'll, we'll close out. I said, okay. So I planned to, you know, speak for maybe five or 10 minutes, you know, be kind of brief. And, and I stood up at the platform of that church and I opened the word of God and I began to preach. And I said, it is my way that when I am speaking in front of an audience in a church to preach the gospel and what better way to preach the gospel than in a moment like this, where I am absolutely grieved to my core, but I, I had went through this process at, prior to this, where after she died, I, I found myself asking God, why? Why God, why? why? Why am I going through this again? Why would you let me go through this again? Why am I dealing with all of this? Why do my kids have to live without their mother? Why did you let her, why didn't you let it be me? They would have been better off with her than me any day of the week. Why? And, and so clearly God finally spoke to me and he said, there's nothing wrong with asking me why, because I was asking God why so that I could explain the situation. I was looking for lock in an illogical situation. And I was asking God why through the lens of my pain. And God said to me, it's not wrong to ask me why, but don't ask me why because of your pain. Ask me why so that you could find purpose. Ooh. And I realized, and I realized in that moment, I had been asking God why because I was trying to explain the pain. I was trying to bring logic to the pain and I was trying to make sense of it. I was trying to untangle the web in my mind and, and make it all lay out and make sense. But what I didn't realize was that, the, and this is what I spoke at my wife's funeral, that God said, um, all things work together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And I stood up and I read that verse and I said, all things, all things including these things, including death, including the things that we cannot answer. All things work together for the good of those that love him. And I said, and I'm not exactly sure what all of this means. I have no idea what the purpose is here. I, ha I, I wish I could explain why. I wish 
Aunt, I wish still that I could explain to my child why his mommy is not here, but I cannot answer those questions. My little boy, you know, he, he was young enough that, that he didn't remember, he really doesn't remember his mom at all. You know, he would see a picture and just because of me telling him, you know, he would, they would know that that's mommy and they know her name, but they don't have any recollection of her. And um, they know that, you know, I told her she's with Jesus. Well, they figured out that, uh, you know, we're, they're what they think where heaven is. And they'll uh, look up at the sky at night sometimes and they'll go, hey, daddy, there's the moon. And I say, yeah, that's the moon, buddy. Is that where Jesus lives? And, you know, trying to explain heaven to a four or five-year-old. I said, yeah, that's where Jesus lives, buddy. So now my, my four and five-year-old, they, st- they, they look at, sometimes they'll look at the sky at night and they'll go, is that where Jesus, his mommy or daddy is up on the moon? And, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll never forget the night that my boy looked up. <clears throat> Take your time, man. I'll never forget the night my, my boy looked up at the sky and he looked at the moon one night. And he looked at me and he said, Daddy, can I go up to heaven and go to the moon and see? And see mommy and Jesus? And my heart broke trying to explain to him, trying to put into context for him something that I had not even been able to put into context for me. Mm. And I found myself right after she had passed, I found myself realizing that I was writing those dark chapters again. The book that I wrote, I finished that book. I wrote the last few words of that book on the patio of my honeymoon suite uh, when me and Sarah got married and the death of my first wife and overcoming that anguish and finding purpose in, in what God was trying to do that that seemed like surely, you know, I've, I've written one of the darkest chapters of my life, right? So, um, I don't know. Maybe I, um, I ended that book in a very premature way, and I ended it um, in a very absolute way when I probably should have wrote to be continued at the end of it. Because I thought I had written that final dark chapter of my life, but I would learn that every book has a beginning and every book has an end. And until the end is pronounced, there are chapters that have to be written. And even at a young age, though I had been through, you know, losing one wife, I had been through some of the torture of life that many people would go a lifetime of, of before they would ever endure, that I, I felt like I had lived the life of an old man in a very short amount of time. Mm. And... Um, I, I, I very unknowingly wrote in a very absolute way what should have been a very open-ended thing. And I learned that there's always another chapter to life. And that that book, if the concept of a book is what represents my life, then when I was born was the moment that the book said in the beginning, God, or the book was once upon a time was the moment that we were born in in every era of our life everything that we go through every moment that we endure it's a chapter and some chapters are joyous and some chapters are are mountaintops and some chapters are lilies and roses and some chapters are dark and some chapters are nasty and some chapters have have got ghouls and ghosts and some have got death and some have got pain and some are the darkest most twisted ideas of humanity wrapped inside of them but every chapter has a purpose every chapter has its own its own message and its own flow uh, uh, where it's going and all of it ties in together at the end until the book ends with the words the end and then you close the book and that's the end and you've reached the end of that book but if life is the book how foolish to ever declare the end of anything and I, I declared the end of that of the darkness of my life, not knowing that there was going to be an additional chapter, chapters that would be written. 
So right after my wife died, I, I went through another dark chapter of my life. I found myself again in that place of, of, of why, and I was angry again. And, and I, was, I, I wasn't angry like I used to be. I didn't fall into that pit of absolute just despair and changing to this totally different person. But, 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 but mentally, I was just an absolute wreck. I would hold myself together. I would, you know, I would be the guy that you want to meet. It, you know, if you walk into a store, a furniture store, and there's a guy trying to sell you a couch, I was the guy that you wanted to bump into. I was nice. I was jovial. I was polite. Um, you know, I, I did everything uh, that I was supposed to. I went to church and I put on my face and I preached and, you know, and I, I made the people say, oh, that was a good sermon preacher, you know, and I did everything I was supposed to. Uh, but then I would go home at night and sometimes I would just go home at night and I would just hold my little girl while she was feeding out of a bottle and I would just cry. I would just cry and I would just say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you're stuck with me. Why would you whisper that to your daughter? <laughs> Sorry that she's with you. My wife was, I, I used to say, and it, it wasn't a joke, it was absolutely the truth, but it was said in a playful way. I would tell my wife, you are absolutely the superior parent. Um, you know, I, 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 like I said, I was the go make the bacon, bring it home and let her fry it. I was, you know, work all day. You know, I took on a second job so that she could stay at home with the kids. Um, you know, I was working my butt off just pay the bills, um, you know, so that she didn't have to work. So she could just stay home with the kids and not have to worry about that. And I, I in retrospect, I wish I wouldn't have worked as much as what I did. But anyway, um, I, I, I knew that, you know, I'm not the patient parent that my wife was. I knew that I'm not the one that seems to just know how to handle a little, a, a little baby. I'm, I'm not the one that has the, the, the genetic buildup to care for children like what my what God instilled in my wife. It, you know, God, I, I'm, I'm just dad and I'm not as good at this as what you know, mom was, and you know, that, that just weighed on me. And I, I can remember one night I actually absolutely a mess. And I, you know, the kids were just, they wouldn't go to sleep and they wouldn't quit crying and they wouldn't quit fussing. And, and I just, I didn't know what to do. Uh. And I, I, I ended up texting my dad and I said, I, I can't do this. I cannot do this. And he called me and my dad talked to me and he he asked me the question, he said, do you love your kids? I said, well, sure I do. He said, if they were to be taken away from you right now and you knew you're never going to see them again, right now, and you're never gonna be able to see them again, could you do that? And I, 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 I said, no, <laughs> no. He said, then you can deal with this. Then you can deal with this. Because you've got enough love for your kids that you can't see them go so that means you've got enough love for them to do this so i took the kick in the butt and you know i and i tried you know i tried to be a good dad and um you know the job that i had i, I it got very easy for me to to work a lot I work pretty much as much as i wanted really and i started working a lot and um that meant that my kids stayed at daycare a lot. They almost never came home because of the way I worked. And then I would create excuses of, of why they needed to just stay there longer. I had no problem writing a check and paying however much I had to pay for them to do that. And, and I had it in the back of my mind, in the recesses of my mind, I thought my kids are better off at a babysitter's house than they are with me. They're getting more from, from a babysitter than they are from me. They're better off right now because I, 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 I just can't do this. And finally, that babysitter who had become a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, she finally had enough of my excuses. And she finally 
just looked me in the eye one day and she said, you're a really crappy dad. You need to get your crap together. Oh. And I'd never had anyone tell me I was a crappy dad. I'd had a lot of people that didn't really know anything about my, my life tell me, oh, you're such a good daddy. Um, but they didn't know my life. They didn't know that. They were just being nice. You know, they were just saying things like people do. And on top of that, you put on a good face every single oh, yeah. day, every Sunday, every every Monday through Saturday until you got home. Yeah, and, and I mean, and everybody should have thought that I was a good dad because that was what I was trying to portray, you know. So after that, I, I realized, you know what I am? <laughs> I am a crappy dad. I am a crappy dad. And I knew I was a crappy dad. I didn't need her to tell me that. I knew it. Um, but I had tried. I'd done everything I could to, to, to talk it away, to explain that away to justify that but i never could i i I could never justify acting like that um right prior to that conversation i was so um just lost in that idea of of not being enough of a parent that that again i found myself this time sitting in an empty room with a loaded gun but this time I didn't drop the rounds out of the cylinder. I, this time the gun was loaded. There was one in the chamber. The safety was off and, and I was ready to go. I was convinced that, you know, my kids would be better off without me than they would be with poor excuse of, of a father that I ever could be. And I was ready to, 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 I was absolutely ready to die. I was ready to go. I was so I was so mentally exhausted and I, I, I was so exhausted of trying to be, I was so exhausted just trying to be mm. Mm. that being was near impossible. Everything was a gut wrenching moment. I, I had lost, I had lost the one person that I loved the most in the world. I lost the woman that was the mother to my two children, I'd lost the one person that I was supposed to get old with. And now I'm I'm gut-wrenching through this, this second burial of a wife that, I, that, that, that never should have happened. I'm angry at, I'm not angry at God, I'm just angry at everything. Right. And I'm trying to make sense of it. I can't make sense of it. I'm just overbearing with, with the responsibility of life and of being a parent and, and all of these things. And it's just, it's too much. I just can't do all of this. Corey, come on, man. At the funeral, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. Romans 8. And then you're preaching this to the people at your, at your wife's funeral. And then now go to work you you're trying to navigate this fatherhood thing that you know it looked easy on leave it to beaver and brady bunch but now those kids are growing up these are babies you got so then now here it is you preached all that and you ran with it and everything smiled and did everything here you are at this moment with a piece in in your lap and your kids off at a babysitter Mm-hmm. Wasn't this the time that now was like WTF God let uh, and, yeah. and let's call it what it was like isn't this at this moment like now this rings through your head like this is too much like God seriously now me me now is that where you are with that with that piece in your lap you know I I think l- let me let me uh, let me put this into context mm-hmm. someone in my life actually asked me the question it is have you ever just looked at god and shook your fist and said wtf and Mm -hmm. and that was a legitimate question to ask and my legitimate answer that question was absolutely not because god is still god and god is still good and i believe that i still believe that and i did believe that and i knew that that was truth but when you are in a place where your where your mind is not able to be rational, what you know is irrelevant because you're not thinking rationally. It doesn't matter what you know. It's about what you're perceiving in that moment. 
And I was not rational at all in that moment to anything that I knew. And what I knew was God does do all things. That God does love me in this great way. That all things do work out for my good. Mm. It, I, I, I knew that, but I wasn't able to perceive that beyond where my mind was because I'd stepped out of rationality. And now I was just this irrational mess. The, the, and this is kind of funny. It's not meant to be funny. It's really true. This is why whenever, you know, like let's say you and your wife get into So you and your wife get into it and you guys have a big argument and she's mad and she's red-faced and she's just, you know, she's spitting everything out at you and she's just, ah, blah, blah, blah. you say the words that no man should ever say to a woman that's aggravated, honey, just calm down. <laughs> yeah, I've learned that particularly with yeah, my mother. There's a my reason yeah. that that takes her from here to here. Oh, yeah. Real fast. Why she goes from mad to irate uh -huh. is because she's not being rational. And when you try to bring someone whose mind is in a rational place and you try to just drag them into rationality, there's a conflict going on in the brain that you cannot just make them become rational. You have to lead them out of the irrational by showing them the rational, but letting them find it, letting them connect it. Because if they never connect it, it doesn't matter how much you show it to them. So I was in that place where I knew what was true, but that didn't matter because all I could focus on was how I felt in that moment and how I was dealing with those feelings in that moment. Though it was completely wrong how I was dealing with, and though I was going against everything I knew, that, that, was, that was my response. Um, and, I'm not, and I'm not trying to explain away and say, you know, give anyone an out for suicide because there is no out for that. That's literally the most selfish thing you could ever do um, it, it is to put someone else through that pain of, of you going through this selfish act of saying, I can't take this anymore with zero regard for anyone else. And that's what kept me from, from going there because the night that I was convinced I'm done, I'm out of here, I'm checked out. It is the same night that I was, I was trying to write a suicide note to my kids mm. so that they would have something to read as they got older to understand why dad died when we were kids why he took his life and i couldn't put the first word down because that was the moment that i snapped out of that irrationality and i became rational again when i had to write that letter because there was no rational way to explain what i was feeling what i was doing and that was a big turning point for me um that that was a big moment in my life and, and that's you know to this day, everything's fine. You know, I'm not, I'm not suicidal. I don't want anyone showing up saying we want to take your guns. You know, that that's not me. I'm, I'm not that guy anymore. I went through a brief period of my life where I contemplated it, but I never attempted it. Um, and I never would, um, you know, my mind is very, very much healthier than what it ever was it's very much more healthy now than what it was. Um, but I went through a stage in my life where my mind wasn't healthy. And I've made the mistake, I never reached out, I never got counseling, I never went to a therapist. Um, I should have, probably a hundred times again over, I should have, uh, but I didn't. I, I tried to manage myself, which was dangerous in itself. God gave us therapists and psychologists for a reason, use them. If you need them, use them. But I, I didn't, I choked on my own words and I said, nah, I'm a big grown man, I don't need help. I don't need to sit on a couch and cry and tell somebody how that makes me feel. That was my idea of a therapist, <laughs> I, don't, I don't need that. Um, and I justified away why I didn't need that, but I, I should have. Probably would have avoided a lot of things had I, had I done that. So now, fast forward, I get told I'm a crappy dad. I, I realize I am a crappy dad. I started trying to not be a crappy dad. You know, I, I started trying to not just write a check to have someone take care of my kids. I started taking care of my kids. I got a different job, got a, got in a different life situation. And uh, the church that I was pastoring at uh, was a very, very small church. You know, it was uh, our resources were very limited. Um, and I said, I need to be in a church where my kids can thrive some, where they can be, um, you know, not just 
you know, quite frankly, the church that I was pastoring was so small that the congregation was elderly. Uh, and if it wasn't for my wife having had them in the nursery, there was no child, no one for child care available that was competent. Um, so my kids on Sundays while daddy went to church to preach, they were at daycare at their babysitter's house. And I said, I can't keep taking my kids to the babysitter on Sundays. You know, I, they need to be in, they need to grow up under the, under the leadership of the word and they need to grow up in the church. So God released me from that ministry. Um, uh, January of 2019, I left, uh, that church. I'd been there for about nine and a half years. I left that church and a friend of mine was the pastor at another church that was actually in my hometown that I grew up in. So I went there, uh, visited there for a little bit. He asked me to come on to be his associate pastor. So I did that, and then some things happened. He ended up having to leave the church. Then I became the uh, senior pastor after he left, and I've been uh, I've been the senior pastor here for uh, a little over two years now. And now I'm in this much better place in my life. I'm actually engaged. Believe it or not, I am getting married in, I think 12 days I'm getting married. Um, yeah, 12 days and getting married again in 12 days. So, right, third time's the charm, right? I, I'm, I'm in a much, much healthier place in my life. My kids are four and five now. I'm in a place in my life now where it doesn't, it doesn't trigger me it doesn't relapse me into a place of depression to tell this story. But now I have an urgency in me to tell this story and not every detail of it, but I have an urgency to tell people that you don't have to be the statistic that people say you're supposed to be. Because if I was supposed to be everything that I was, that, that society said I should be, statistically, I should be an alcoholic Statistically, I should be, you know, in a dysfunctional relationship, probably divorced. Statistically, I should be an addict of some kind. Statistically, I should be screwed up. That's what statistics say I should be. Society says I should be. And, and I, I believe I am living proof that you don't have to be what anyone says that you have to be, that just because a textbook says that statistically this is what you should be. You don't have to fall down that road. The Bible talks about in the Old Testament, it talks about this concept that the church talks of generational curses. And I see that as in modern day, it's, you know, it's third generation divorce. It's fourth generation alcoholism. It's fifth generation, you know, abuse. It's the, that's the generational curses. It's the things that are passed down from one generation to the next and then to the next. And most of the time it is addiction. It is promiscuity. It is divorce. It is dysfunction. It's bitterness and anger. And, and, and we pass these things down, sometimes not even through our DNA. Sometimes they're passed down, uh, you know, monkey see, monkey do. And they're found in this way of subconsciously taught. I was subconsciously taught growing up that if you don't like her and you're married, just say, let's just get a divorce. Dysfunction was absolutely taught to me subconsciously as I was being raised up. And statistically, I should fall into that pattern. Um, but I, I made a covenant with God a long time ago that I don't want to be that next generation of failure. I want to be that next generation of dysfunction and alcoholism and all the things that I resented growing up. I don't want my kids to have to see and fear the things that I feared and saw when I was a child. I want them to see the things I didn't see. I want them to experience going to church every Sunday. I want them to experience what it's like to have a mom and daddy that love Jesus. I want them to experience what it's like to have a, you know, a mom and daddy that pray over them and, and love them and, and that try to shield them from certain uh, sin. I don't want them to have my experience. What I want what every parent wants for their kids. I want them to have better than what I had but I've realized the only way my kids can have better is if I do better, is if I be better. That's right. You know, yeah, there's there's generational curses that go back generations in my family. I had to make a choice to crush the curse. I had to make a choice to say, you know, not 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 in this generation, not in this link of the chain. This is this ends here.
you know, I made those choices. And one of the ways that, that I love to do that is, is through, you know, talking to you and telling this story. And um, when someone asks me about my life and they ask me about my story or, you know, they don't know the details of what I've been through or I tell it, you know, if I say something to someone about my wife um, or, you know, my, my first wife, they look at me and go, your first wife, you know, and then there's usually a joke about a divorce that gets thrown in there. And then I, I tell them, no, she passed away, but I always get to tell them about Jesus because always people will say this to me. They'll say, I don't know how you do it, or I don't know how you made it, or I don't know how you overcame all that. I always, some variation of that. And my answer is always the same. And my answer is always, if it wasn't for Jesus, I would have died a long time ago. And I get to share Jesus with people all the time, just simply because I believe again, rationally, I believe what is true. In Revelation, when it says we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. The blood of the lamb, Jesus doesn't save me. I'm confident in that. But I'm going to overcome my setbacks, my failures, my pain. I'm going to overcome all of that by my testimony. Yeah. The blood of the lamb, that, that, that's that's God's part. He did that part. I, I, I didn't have a hand in that. My testimony, that's my ball. That's in my court. That was God saying here. Now, now for your show's uh, example, you know, that was God throwing me the towel and saying, okay, now it's your turn. Now you do this. And if God gives me this, this story, this life, and I never tell someone about it for his glory, then what have I went through for what end? All I've done is experience hell. I mean, that's pointless. I mean, I, if that was all it was, then I probably would have shook my fist at heaven and said, God, WTF. But I know God bigger, even in my irrational behavior, I knew God is bigger than that. And, you know, I, I've I've heard this comparison said a lot, and I don't know where it came from, uh, but when I heard your show and I, I talked to you, it, uh, this immediately came to my mind was, and I saw a thing on Facebook I saw, but it said, uh, I wanted to, th I wanted to throw in the towel, but God threw it back to me and said, wipe your face. You're not done yet. I, I feel like I've been, you know, again, I've wrote the dark chapter of my life and I thought I'd see that book, but then I, you know, now, now there's other chapters that I'm not going to write. I don't want to volume two of that book, but I learned that life is that book and that God hasn't said the end yet for me. And until the end comes, whether that be in 10 years or whether that be when I'm an old man, that there's chapters that have to be written. Ecclesiastes says there's a time and a there's a time appointed unto everything. And the things that we endure through life, we have to make decisions about the things that we endure. And I, I think that's where a lot of people we, we get hung up is we we go through certain things in our life but we don't respond to them in the right way. And and life is a series of, of, of circumstances and responses. And how we respond to those circumstances is is how the, the legacy of our life will be written. Um, you know, I've got a tattoo that says 2 Timothy 4, 7. And it's when Paul said, and that's, that's my legacy. I said, if I have anything written on on my tombstone. I want that verse to be written on my tombstone. And that's when Paul said, I fought a good fight. I finished the course and I've kept the faith. Paul was nearing the end of his life. And he said, I fought good. I finished well. And I stayed faithful. That is all I can do. That's all I can strive to do is to finish well. I may not finish perfectly. I may finish in a way where I would think, man, I didn't get everything right the way I, I accomplished everything I wanted to accomplish. But as long as I finish well, that's all that matters. And now I want to finish well. I, I, I want to finish in a way that I took what I have dealt with and I used it for some good. I, I used it. Somebody got something out of what I went through that I didn't endure this 
for nothing, that I didn't go through this moment in my life without purpose. Because I think that's what everybody's looking for, right? We're, we're, we're looking for purpose. We're looking for a way that we can explain everything that we're going through. Yeah. And, and, and looking for, you know, give me two sentences to explain away all of the pain to make it make sense. And that's what we want to do in life when really the truth is that, that life is a process, it's a series of events. And what you go through today, you may not ever get the purpose to that until a long time from now. In fact, you may never see the purpose of that in your lifetime. That may be a purpose that somebody else gets to see, but God used you as the conduit to get it to them. Brother, this is incredible. And before we leave this gym, Mr. Corey Hall, why do you keep your towel? I keep it because I'm not done yet. Because I'm, I'm in this fight of life and, and I keep trying to give up and God won't let me. <laughs> and until God's, until the end comes, then I guess I'll keep swinging. I might go down hard, but I'm gonna at least leave a mark and let someone know I was there. That's the name of the game. As long as you get up before the 10 count. That's all that matters, right? Right. So that's what's up. So ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Getting a chance to speak with Mr. Corey Hall. And if this was not an incredible, incredible testimony of keeping the towel, I don't know what is to you. Corey, go ahead and let the people know where can they reach you. Give them your social media anywhere. The floor is yours, my man. Go ahead. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, not so much, but I'm there. Uh, Corey Hall, C-O-R-E-Y uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, hit, I've also got a podcast, Simply Said Podcast. It's on all the outlets. Uh, find us on Facebook, Simply Said Podcast, Simply Said Pod on Face, uh, Twitter and Instagram. You know, just real life conversations we do there. Also, and I'm going to go ahead and drop this. I've not dropped this publicly, but I'll drop it here. Um, I do have a website that I just created. I just got it online. Um, to where I'm trying to go into some uh, some different ventures with what uh, with this story, uh, and that website is crushthecurse.com, um, and there's links to the podcast on the website. There's a link to buy the horrible book that I referenced on the website if you really want to go there. Um, but yeah, and and all that stuff's there. Crushthecurse.com. What's the name of the book you got, bro? Transforming Your Destiny. Transforming Your Destiny. All right, so folks, listen up. That's going to be all in the description box below. You'll be able to check out Corey's social media, websites, and his book. I'm going to put it all there so you'll be able to connect with him. So that's what I need you to do. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you to my guest, Corey. Thank you so much for joining me in the gym. And, boy, Thanks, these was like these went some serious rounds. These went way over 10. But, hey, this is what happens when you got to get your muscles together and get your reaction time in tune. So, with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. This is your man, Ant Boogie. You know where you can always reach me on Instagram at I am Ant Boogie 3000, at I am Ant Boogie 3000, on Twitter, Ant Boogie 3000, on Twitter, at Ant Boogie 3000. Thanks a lot for joining me. Thanks to you, Corey, to my guests for joining me in the sparring gym. This round is officially over. And. Ladies and gentlemen, like I always tell you, wipe the blood, wipe the sweat, wipe the tears. But whatever you do, don't throw in the towel. This is your man and Boogie. I'll check you when I check you. I'll see you when I see you. Be safe. Be well. Peace.